Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I am your host, Richie Plush, uh, Senior Director of Partnerships at Learn Behavioral and a Behavior Analyst. I know many of you were expecting to hear Rob Haup today. He is off gallivanting across the country and supporting other uh, other agencies. And so I am going to be spearheading this podcast for the foreseeable future. I look forward to getting to know all of you and sharing more about myself as we go. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with you. It's a discussion about early intervention and the diagnosis process with Dr. Geraldine Dawson. We also discussed uh, supporting the whole child and the whole family. Dr. Geraldine Dawson is a distinguished professor at Duke University, where she currently serves as director of Duke Institute for Brain Sciences, as well as director of the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development, an NIH Autism Center of Excellence. She has also published several books on autism, including A Parent's Guide to High-Functioning Autism, and most recently, What Science Tells Us About Autism Spectrum Disorder. Thank you, Geraldine, so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Well, I'm happy to be here. I wanted to get started and just chat a little bit about um, a little bit about early detection, and that's so important and such a critical part of your research and your background. So, can you give us a little bit of information about um, why is early early detection so important? Right. Well, what we know is that if we identify autism very early in life and we provide uh, early stimulation, early intervention, that this can make a very big difference in a child's outcome. It can affect um, their language development, their ability to learn, their ability to uh, socially interact with other people. So it's just very important that we recognize those early symptoms and then get kids into intervention so that uh, they can just have the best outcome possible. That's perfect. And at your Duke Center, you're spending a lot of time researching kind of early detection and early, uh, early brain development. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Now, there's been so much that we've learned over the last several years about early development and autism. Um, let's start with what we've learned about the brain. Great. Uh, one Great. thing is that we, we do know that autism begins um, actually during the prenatal period, at the point where the you know baby is still in the womb. And we we know that there's changes that are that are happening just very very early on. And in fact, we can measure these using a technique called MRI, where we can image the brain in a young baby that then may go on to develop autism, and look at the changes that are happening very early on. Um, these studies are the way they've been done is to follow what are called high risk infants. So these are infants that have an older sibling with autism. And what we know is that when you have one child with autism in the family, that the risk of the second child developing autism is much higher than the general population. It's actually about one in five. 
And so there's been many studies over the last several years where we've been following these high-risk infants prospectively starting very early in development, even before you could recognize autism symptoms and looking to see, are there any changes in the brain that are happening, say, during the first year of life? And what we've learned is that we can measure changes as early as six months of age, even before we would expect to see any kind of symptoms of autism. But on the uh, looking at behavior now, um, we've also learned a lot about the earliest behavioral symptoms. And, of course, that's the thing that's most important to parents because this is something they can actually see. And what we've learned is that between about 6 and 12 months, that babies who are going to go on to get a diagnosis of autism, that they tend to become um, sort of less interested in paying attention to people. Um, And they're much more interested in the world of objects. So, um, you know, a typical baby is making eye contact and they're, Um, interacting socially, uh, they're babbling um, at other people. Um, But a baby that's going to develop autism is showing fewer of those kinds of behaviors. And so, you know, parents may be concerned about this and say, you know, I've just noticed that my baby isn't, you know, quite as socially responsive as we would expect. Um, Another early symptom is um, a failure to orient to um, their name being called. So by about eight months of age, if you call a baby's name, that baby will turn his head or her head and and look at you. And these babies that go on to develop autism are not showing this early orienting to name is the way we refer to it. And in fact, sometimes, you know, parents will think, oh, you know, my baby must be deaf because he's not turning when I call her name. And um, but in fact, the baby is not deaf. It, it's just an early symptom that the that the baby's not really paying attention to all that social information in the environment. Right. And then by 12 months of age, the, the symptoms that we see really have to do with early gestures So by 12 months of age, um, infants are very interested in pointing at things and showing you things, and um, babies who are developing autism don't tend to show those early gestures of pointing and showing. So these are really um, things that uh, any parent can look out for, Um, and then if they see those kinds of symptoms, um, we really encourage them to mention it to the pediatrician when they go in for their one-year checkup, for example, um, because we have some pretty good screening tools now we can use for autism that a pediatrician should be using um, at least by 18 months of age. That's, that was going to be my next question is exactly that. Should, when should parents you know, reach out for, uh, to their pediatrician, and, and who else should they follow up with um, besides their pediatrician? Is there anybody else in the community? Sure. Well, first of all, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all toddlers be screened for autism at 18 and 24 months of age. And there's um, some just uh, questionnaires that a pediatrician should be using during those well-child checkups um, that ask parents about different symptoms that might be present. And then 
Um, this is not diagnostic, so if your pediatrician does say, oh, we're seeing some of these signs, um, it doesn't mean necessarily that your uh, toddler has autism, but it does mean that you should go and have your toddler seen by um, a specialist in autism to be able to see if, in fact, you know, the toddler does have autism. But really, any time a parent has concern, and this could even be, be before 18 months, they should bring this up with their pediatrician. Um, and then uh, ideally, the, the pediatrician would be able to uh, refer the parent um, to get an evaluation. The other thing that's important for parents to know is that um, every state has what are called um, birth to three centers, or some people call these Part C because it's part of a, a law that was passed. But these birth to three centers, which you can, you know, Google just by putting in birth to three and then um, looking in your own community, these are um, actually paid for by the government and they will provide um, evaluations for parents anytime birth to age three when a parent has concerns. So that's another way to just reach out directly and get an evaluation during that early period. Um, maybe your pediatrician, for example, might say, oh, I'm just going to wait and see. And you might, as a parent, still be concerned and you have some other resources that should be free of charge um, to you that you can access. That's great. I mean, I think a lot of families need to be persistent when they're when they're pursuing a diagnosis in some ways. Um, I've heard a lot of families say that exact thing. Oh, my pediatrician says, you know, he's a boy, he'll develop fine, we just need to wait. And I, I love that you're encouraging families to do the exact opposite and to continue to follow up if, if that's what needs to happen. Absolutely. And in fact, there um, was even a really, I think, important study that um, evaluated how often are parents correct when they have a concern. And it turns out that they are often correct. So parents, um, their intuition is really important. We need to pay attention to what parents are saying. And uh, now not always, you know, sometimes we have concerns as parents and then, you know, we're just reassured when we get an evaluation, but that's, that's fine too. It's better to, you know, be safe than sorry. But uh, most of the time parents are very, very good at picking up when their baby is not developing in the typical way. So, um, I think we, as professionals, we've learned to really value what parents are telling us. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I'm thinking about the family who is maybe listening to this that may be concerned a little bit or, or maybe sort of going through that diagnostic process right now. Um, can you share a little bit about some of those questionnaires you mentioned and what, what they might include and maybe the title of some of them for, for our audience that doesn't necessarily know that just yet? Yeah, the most commonly used autism screening questionnaire is something called the Modified Autism Checklist for Toddlers, also called the MCHAT. And, in fact, you can get online and just search for MCHAT, and there are even places um, such as the Autism Speaks website where you can fill out the MCHAT online and get feedback directly of whether your child is showing um, symptoms of autism. But the kind of things that that questionnaire would ask about are things like, um, is your child pointing at things? Is your child... 
um, playing with things um, in a in a social way. For example, is your child imitating you? Um, is your child making uh, typical kinds of um, you know sounds in a way that's communicative? So these are kind of um, is your child orienting when their name is called, which you talked about earlier. So these are um, things that parents can just observe, you know, every day when they are interacting with their their toddler. Um, so, you know, that is another resource for parents is just to get online, go ahead and fill that that questionnaire out. Like I said, they have it on the Autism Speaks website. And then you can print it out or just show your pediatrician when you go in and say, look, you know, um, I filled this out and um, it looks like, you know, maybe I should have some concerns. Now, I want to emphasize that if your if your due score such that um, it looks like there's concerns, it does not mean that your child has been diagnosed with autism. So we don't, you know, when you have a screening questionnaire, you want not to miss anyone. So it tends to pick up more kids than actually have autism. So that's why it's so important to um, go and have your child evaluated. Now, it turns out that most kids, not all, but most kids, when they score high on that questionnaire, there is something going on. And so, for example, you may find out, oh, my child doesn't really have, you know, have autism, but they're a little bit delayed in their language. Well, that's good to know, too, because, you know, speech-language therapy can be really helpful. I think the main take-home message here is that, you know, pay attention to your instincts. Um, go ahead, you know, fill out questionnaires, bring questions to your pediatrician, and know that there are ways that then you can really help your child and that this will make a difference. And that's, I think, one of the things that's so encouraging is that we know that once we start using strategies with a young child who might be having delays, that they will respond to this so they can learn to, to socially interact, to, to um, be able to use language. So you can have a really big impact on your child's outcomes. So let's talk about that for a second. I, you know, you mentioned strategies, um, and and you mentioned speech uh, speech language services. What are what are some things that families can expect um, for some of those early intervention methods, and what are, what are some of the most effective ones that are out there? Right. So there are um, the strategies that we typically use um, are ones where we're. Um, kind of bringing the child back into the social world if, if they have autism, for example. So remember that I said autism typically involves the child, you know, mostly being interested in the world of objects and the world of toys, but not necessarily paying as much attention to people, um, not being as interested in playing games and things like that. Well, we can... Um, use strategies where we essentially kind of enter into the child's world, follow what they're interested in, and then encourage them to become interested in people um, by um, really playing with things that the child enjoys and then inserting ourselves into that play. So there's some wonderful strategies where you're essentially um, building on the interests and preferences that the child has 
but inserting yourself as a partner in that activity. And sure enough, when you do that, and if you do that in a way that's gentle and, and encouraging, um, children will then learn that, hey, actually, it's really fun to interact with right. my parents <laughs> as well. And um, they, you know, will will start in, interacting socially. And then once we have the child paying attention to other people, then there's some really nice strategies just for teaching. You know, how do you teach um, how to play with an object in a way that is more sharing and, and turn-taking rather than just by yourself. You know, how do you use um, speech to communicate? So all those kinds of skills that uh, we want to see the child develop. That's, that's great. I love, I love the idea of play. I mean, I think that's something that we, we overlook often is play with, you know, I play with my children all the time. We play board games and we play cards and we were, um, we were pretending to be um, Robin Hood the other day and, and swinging in the branches in the backyard. And I think that's such a, it's a way for us to really build a connection, certainly. But, but that play changes as we, as we age a little bit. You know, um, what are some strategies for families for maybe a little bit older child, maybe um, not quite 10 years old, maybe in that like preteen age? Is there, is there something that they should be doing differently or is it still the same idea? It's it is a similar idea in the sense that um, one of the things that we've learned is uh, kind of in the old days when we used to do therapy, um, it was done more like a drill, right, where you're um, just teaching uh, skills in a very rote fashion. And not surprisingly, what we found, you know, whether we're talking about a toddler or a ten-year-old, is that kids just wouldn't be that motivated, right, to be involved in the whole therapeutic process. And so the new um, kinds of therapies actually pay a lot of attention to whether the child is enjoying what they're doing um, and also the emotional relationship between the therapist or the, the parent and the child because that will motivate them to want to interact. So it really is all about um, being sort of following what the child is interested in, but then kind of inserting ourselves into that in a way that facilitates that social relationship rather than um, necessarily doing things that the child might not enjoy. Uh, because play and social interaction is the platform for learning, um, it, for not only learning about you know social things like facial expressions and how to have a conversation, but you know it is the place where we learn a lot of other things, right? So when you're playing that board game, your child's learning about you know counting and how to take turns and you know how to sequence things. So a lot of times we don't realize how much learning occurs in the context of that social interaction, play, game. So um, making sure that that's an enjoyable experience um, is really important. My, my colleague Sally Rogers calls this finding the smile, um, which is finding things that the child really enjoys. And, you know, sometimes it's it's things like, you know, rough and tumble play, right? It could be right. being on the ground, you know, just, um, you know, tossing the child up and or playing um, chase or things like that. It doesn't even have to be like a structured board game as long as it's social and it's it's um, helping to form that, you know, uh, emotional bond before, between the child and the, the parent. I love that that statement that play is the platform for learning. I love that. I think that's 
such an important thing for so many families. It's it's so true on so many levels. Um, mm-hmm. Great. I want to I want to talk about your book a little bit. Um, recently, you just came out with a, another yet another book. You apparently you had a few minutes of free time. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> what science tells us about autism spectrum disorder? Um, fantastic resource for families covering the lifespan. Really, you know, the early intervention that you were talking about, even the, some of the prenatal. Um, uh, conversation that we had earlier, but then also getting into adolescence and adulthood. Um, if there's one piece of information for for uh, families who have young, youngsters transitioning into adolescent age, what, would, what, what advice would you give? You give one piece of advice. Wow. <laughs> one piece of advice. Well, I'll try. Um, you can well, give one more of the if things, you need to. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, one of the things that the book um, – really points out is the importance of paying attention to um, the whole child, including the sort of uh, aspects that have to do with physical health. So if you look at the chapters, we are talking about things like sleep and nutrition, um, GI GI issues. So um, we know that autism is often associated with sleep problems and with, um, you know, tummy problems or GI problems. Um, we also know that um, children with autism are, and all throughout life, their lifespan are very picky eaters. And so um, we, and then also that maybe they might be reluctant to be out there participating in sports because Maybe that is a little overwhelming because of the complexity of the the social environments that sports you know often entails, mm-hmm. and so for all those reasons, um, you can have really significant health issues that are impacting uh, your child, whether it's a child or adolescent, their behavior. So we ha- we talk a lot of, in the book about things like um, if your child does have sleep difficulties, which are extremely common in autism. And by the way, in a lot of kids, it's just they're more severe and more frequent in autism, that uh, some of the behavioral issues, some of the difficulties in learning, even in social interaction, might have to do with these really the sleep problems, right? And so um, similarly, if your child isn't eating well um, and has some nutritional deficiencies, that's going to make a difference. Or if your child's in pain because they have um, some uh, GI issues, which we know are very common in autism, you know, this is going to affect their behavior. And so um, these are things that, you know, any parent can pay attention to and um, really change the quality of life for their their uh, child or adolescent by making sure to not just to attend to the behavioral issues, but also to the physical health issues. Yes, I mean, I, I know how I feel when I don't get enough sleep, um, and it's, it's not great. Uh, one of the things I really liked was the, the conversation you, you had in there about really establishing you know, sleep hygiene, sleep, uh, a bedtime routine, getting ready for, getting ready for bed is is not just a. All right, I turned off the TV, I walked into my room, and I fell onto my bed and I fell asleep. There's more to it than that. <laughs> so I love the idea of the, the the good sleep hygiene. Can you tell us a little bit about what that could look like for people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. As I was mentioning, uh, autism is often associated with sleep problems, and 
we know that is because of the biology of autism. And in fact, um, there are certain genes that regulate our circadian rhythm and help us to um, go to sleep, you know, easily and stay asleep and then wake up um, refreshed. And it is possible that there is this underlying biology that is disrupted because we know some of those genes are involved in autism. But on the other hand, in the majority of cases, it it can be helped simply by, um, as you said, implementing good sleep hygiene. And what this means is, first of all, uh, powering down on any of the devices at least a couple of hours before the child goes to sleep. This is, by the way, good for all of us. All of us. Right. So it's good advice for all of us. And I actually do this myself because if I I am at the computer up until the moment that I try to get in bed and fall asleep, I'm going to have trouble falling asleep. Because we know that the light that is emitted by a computer is stimulating um, our brains and it is disrupting that uh, production of melatonin and it's it's uh, making it so that that circadian rhythm is is getting disrupted. So that's one of the things that you know we immediately need to do. Second thing is to um, establish a routine um, around uh, going to bed. And so, you know, having a regular routine, you know, the brushing teeth, getting your pajamas on, you know, maybe having a low-key activity. It could be, um, you know, kind of being with you for a few minutes, doing something enjoyable. It could even be, you know, reading something um, that is not um, on on a device. Uh, but having that same routine uh, each night can be really helpful because our body um, responds to the cues in the environment that are signaling that it is time to go to bed. Uh, these are called sleep associations. And so our body gets trained to recognize, oh, these these cues mean that my body should be, you know, slowing down and and getting sleepy. So it's really important to kind of have those same cues each night. Another issue just has to do with light. So we know that light is really important in regulating, as I said, our circadian rhythm, in regulating melatonin. And so we do want to have an environment where it... um, you know, it does is as dark as possible. Now, of course, some kids like a nightlight on, and that's fine. But making sure that you're um, kind of having a, a dark environment. Um, so those are things that are all important. And then finally, um, having a bedtime that is around the same time every night is really important. Um, they even suggest, and the, again, these are all suggestions for not only the you know child who has autism, but for all of us, is you even on the weekend, if you can keep that bedtime similar, um, that'll really be helpful because your body does um, kind of get used to a certain rhythm, and when that is variable, um, that can really uh, disrupt things. In fact, there was a study that showed in terms of impact on things like attention, the ability to learn, that sleep irregularity, meaning, you know, different bedtime or different amounts of sleep um, over time, is much more disruptive than just the sheer amount of sleep. Um, So this idea of something very regular um, is really important. That's it's. 
I love that you're saying this because that's, you know, whenever we're providing services and whenever we're working with the family as a behavior analyst, one of the first things I always talk about is the importance of a sleep and a bedtime routine. And those routines don't just, they don't get established quickly. And sometimes they take a little bit of time and, and certainly a lot of practice. But the nice thing is you can practice every night. Um, and I think that's, I love that you're highlighting that for families because it's its often overlooked. Um, it's like, oh yeah, they're, they were up until two in the morning. Well, that's going to have a huge impact on any of us on any given day. And then throwing in, you know, hours of therapy or hours of school and on top of, you know, um, social programs or language programs or whatever it may be, it can really be overwhelming if you're doing all of that when you're exhausted. So I'd love that yeah, you're bringing that I agree. for families. Well, and I think it's important to point out that that one, you know, I think it's something like 80% of sleep problems will be resolved with good sleep hygiene, but there still is the 20% where even if you're doing that um, because um, autism is associated with, you know, certain biological changes that could be, make sleep difficult. Um, it's it's really important to bring that up again with the pediatrician because um, we do have some good um, medications that can be used. And, and in fact, uh, melatonin um, has been shown to be an effective treatment for sleep in children with autism. Um, however, it's important that this be done not just by going to the drugstore and picking up some melatonin, but rather um, going to see a doctor and talking to them about it because um, there can be really significant differences in the quality of what you get. Um, and also yeah, there's some nice uh, formulations that are uh, time release and things like that. So um, it's it's a, it even though it is something you can pick up at the drugstore, it's good to pick it up to discuss it with your uh, a physician and even sometimes get a prescription of, uh, rather than over the counter. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, um, especially when you're. It could be. I don't know if it has any impact with other medications or not, but the best person to discuss all of that with would be your pediatrician or your physician. Absolutely. Um, one thing I'm hearing. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to return to something you asked me about earlier, and I and um, I was going to just delve into it just a little bit more deeply, Great. if you don't mind. Um, no, you were asking mind. about, yeah, you were asking about what kind of um, you know interventions are are helpful, and you mentioned about being a behavior analyst. And so one of the things I wanted to point out is that most really, well, let me say all um, behavioral interventions that have been found to be effective are ones that are built on the science of what we call learning or also called applied behavior analysis, or some people call this ABA. And this is, as you well know, as a behavior analyst, is, is using techniques that um, will help to shape and reward uh, positive behaviors in a child, including you know social interaction and language. And I think the shift that has occurred you know, over the last several years is to embed these um, ABA strategies in a more play-based or relationship or natural kind of interaction rather than to present these in more of a rote or drilled fashion. Uh, but the, the effective interventions still um, have that foundation in ABA, um, whether it's, you know, um, one of the more natural ones or 
uh, one that's a little more structured, um, they all they all incorporate those uh, principles of of what we call ABA or learning. It's so important that we're that we're having this conversation. There are so many families that have this uh, this idea of what. ABA is, and you know, I've had conversations where they say um, the parent will say, "Oh, all they're doing is just playing games," and it's like, and we have to have this similar conversation <laughs> that you and I are having, um, and and we just have to break it down, you know, and and then we've also had the other con- the other conversation where it's, "Oh, we're not going to do ABA because you know I don't want them to be sitting you know in a room with nothing around them and no toys and no interaction for 40 hours a week," and it's, so it's really just an if we have the opportunity to educate the community on what the most recent science is telling us, I think, you know, we're doing that. And I love, I love that we're doing that. Um, but it's a slow, steady conversation and it, and it's going to continue, I think for the next few years. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the things that I noticed, uh, in, in your book, and, and it certainly goes back to the conversation we were having about sleeping is if, um, is the idea of self-care for the, for parents. Um, certainly if, if, Children aren't sleeping well. Parents aren't sleeping well, um, and that wears parents out. What What are some things that families can be doing to make sure that they're taking care of themselves in all of this? Um, we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about how we can be providing services and, and supporting our our sons and daughters and and those with with autism. But how can we support the parents, and how the, can the parents take care of themselves? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, well, to, to begin with. Um, Research has shown that having a child with autism is associated with um, a pretty high level of stress in parents. And, you know, partly that's because, um, you know, they're having to sort of seek out a lot of different interventions. Um, You know, there may be some ups and downs in terms of development and, and trying to understand, you know, what is most helpful for their child just figuring out what they should be doing. Um, Sometimes there's costs associated with getting those therapies, and that can put stress on the family. So we do know that these families are under a lot of stress. And we also know, you know, from our own experience that when you're under stress, you're not able to, you know, take care of other people um, in the way that you need to as a a caregiver. And so I kind of liken it to that, you know, being on the airplane where they say first per, put the mask on you before you put it on your <laughs> child. <laughs> and Good I, analogy. That's, yeah, that's the way I think about it is that if a parent isn't feeling good themselves, if they're depressed or they're stressed, if they're not getting enough sleep, um, then, you know, they're not going to be able to be the, you know, the best parent that they can be for their child. So it is important, even though sometimes I know it's hard for parents to do this, to take time for themselves and, you know, to have the parents actually go off and spend some alone time uh, so that they're nurturing their own relationship um, spending time with the other children in the family um, so that, that those kids are not getting neglected, um, doing uh, things that are um, can be mentally nurturing. So, for example, uh, going to yoga, uh, meditation, uh, going to church or your synagogue, um, going to a book club, you know, going out to lunch with a friend, 
all of those things, even though they may seem like, oh my gosh, I'm just centering on myself and my child has so much need. In fact, when you do those things, you're actually helping your whole family uh, because you're going to have that energy um, and um, you're going to just be more available and and in the end, you know, you'll you'll end up helping your your kids and the rest of the family much more. So it, it it's really important uh, to do that. Absolutely, and and all of those things you just described, you know, yoga, med- you know, meditation, they're all a lot of those are around finding your support network, and I really want to encourage families to make sure that you have your own support network. You know, we've talked about how. Um, I, you know, isolating it can be uh, for a child with autism in terms of social interaction, but that can be the same for parents. So if you're a parent and you're listening to this, uh, find find a network for you, whatever that may be. If it's um, if it's yoga, great. If it's not, that's okay. There are lots of other avenues for you to um, for you to have that social interaction and really that support network that you're describing. Yeah, I I completely agree. And there's so many opportunities, I think, for parent groups where they can, whether it's just um, a friend, but also uh, getting together with other parents who have special needs uh, kids, I think can be extremely, um, you know, helpful because it's somebody that really understands what you're going through and you can get together um, and, you know, have your kids there. And it, it, it just is um, just a wonderful way to get that social support you need. Absolutely. Um, Geraldine, thank you so much. I, I realized you and I could chat for the next six hours and it would be very easy conversation, certainly. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm, I don't want to take up your whole life, uh, but I, I thought about it. Um, uh, one thing I want to know is where um, where can families and, and clinicians uh, learn more of, of the work that you're doing and, and where can they find your book? Well, so the... Um the book, the title is uh, What Science uh, Tells Us About Autism, and um, if you, you know, search for that on the Internet, you'll pull it right up either, you know, on Amazon or um, it's published by uh, Guilford Pub- Publications. So I I do think it's um, a helpful book. It's written specifically for parents. It brings... Um, in a very uh, understandable way, all of the newest science um, about what we know about autism, you know, everything from what we know about risk factors to health issues to adult development. Uh, So we really hope it's um, helpful for parents. It's fantastic. And I found it um, on, it's easy to find on Amazon. Very nice, easy search. What science tells us about autism spectrum disorder, and then where can they uh, where can they find more about you and the research that you're doing um, at Duke Institute? Right. So it's the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development. Uh, so again, you can uh, search on the internet uh, f- uh, for Duke and Geraldine Dawson, and you'll pull up our center and. You can read about all the different research studies we're doing, the clinical services we're offering. So that's probably the best uh, source of information. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again for being here today. Love to have you back again in the future. Okay. It was my pleasure. That concludes our conversation with Geraldine Dawson. I hope you found it as engaging and as formative as I did. I really enjoyed the conversation we had about really talking about finding the smile and making sure that we just spend time playing and connecting with our children. I think that's good advice for all of us. Um, 
for our audience, if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can reach out to us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. I look forward to being your host going forward. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.